This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Claire, what can you see right now? Uh, nothing now. Nothing now. Everybody ready? Okay. So three, two, one, start stimulation. Yes. Can you see? Oh my goodness. Wow, Can you see Larry? Yes. What you're hearing is a man named Larry Hester seeing for the first time in 33 years. Yes. Oh it's my flashing. goodness. Big time flashing. He's in a medical office surrounded by doctors and his family. And he's wearing a special pair of glasses and staring at a bright light. This video was shot in 2014 roughly a month after Hester had a device surgically implanted in his eye by a surgeon at Duke, a device that allowed him to see light and differentiate it from darkness. It was incredible. It was bright, and it was significant. And I, I just had to take a deep breath. And I was just... It really was a revolutionary technology, and when it came out, there were a lot of stories written about these remarkable emotional moments. That's journalist Eliza Strickland. She's a senior editor at the tech magazine IEEE Spectrum. It was really seen as something of a miracle, even though the vision was very crude, just the fact that humanity had built a gadget that could, that could restore any kind of sight was, I think, a really powerful idea. Powerful enough that hundreds of patients like Larry Hester went on to get retinal implants made by a company called Second Sight. Most of them spoke very movingly about what it was like to get even a little bit of light perception back after having nothing for a long time. Second Sight patients were paired with support staff to help them adjust to their implants, and they were supposed to get software updates as well. But then the company ran into trouble. It struggled financially stopped making retinal implants in 2019, and was nearly bankrupt a year later. Last month, it announced a merger, but it's unclear if the new company can help these implant patients. Now, roughly 350 people around the world have technology in their eyes that is unsupported and obsolete. They do not know how long their devices will last. If they have a problem, they don't know if there'll be any repair possible. They cannot count on the company that made the technology for anything, really. The, te- the company is, um, has basically essentially washed its hands of this technology and the people. Today on the show, Eliza tells the story of a technological breakthrough that brought patients something extraordinary and the corporate unraveling that may leave them in the dark. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. A neural implant is a device that's placed inside a patient's body and works by interacting with part of their nervous system. Probably the most well-known example is deep brain stimulation, when electrodes are placed inside the brain. DBS is sometimes used for Parkinson's patients. Back when Eliza wrote her first story about retinal implants, the field was promising but relatively new. In 2011, they were just the beginning of these really exciting developments in neuroprosthetics, There was some work being done in implants to stimulate the spinal cord to enable people who had lost the use of their legs to walk again. There was a lot of very preliminary work on brain implants and what could be done with that. There were even companies talking about memory prosthetics, like for people with Alzheimer's or, or other memory problems, that there might be a way to put in an implant that would assist. But it was all it was all really early stages, and only a few of these things have advanced to the point of being commercial, you know, clinical products. At this sort of beginning of that decade, did did researchers and companies and patients seem optimistic that, that there was promise in doing this? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of excitement. Um, and I think maybe people didn't realize just how long it would take to move from exciting results in the lab to FDA-approved clinical products that would uh, thrive in the medical marketplace. One company that saw opportunity in this potential marketplace was Second Sight. They would go on to build the retinal implant known as the Argus that Eliza wrote about. Second Sight began with a group of researchers who were investigating whether you could stimulate the retina to produce a flash of light. And there were several researchers and engineers who are working together on this. One of the the youngest people on the team was, I think, then a medical student named Robert Greenberg. And he saw this and just wanted to make it his life's work. And so he and others co-founded Second Sight in 1998. Second Sight tested its first retinal implant, the Argus, in 2002. It built on that system to make the Argus II, which was approved by the FDA in 2013. It was the first of its kind, I think. Second Sight seemed to have a durable implant that provided stable vision. Um, They had a good smart system. But again, the sight that it provided was really rudimentary. And, you know, the founders talk about this and admit they were starting at a very low bar. And they, you know, one of the co-founders, Robert Greenberg, told me they had a lot of discussions internally. How good was good enough? Like, when should they try to bring it to patients? Should they try and increase the resolution before bringing it out? But they decided to bring it out, even with this sort of crude black and white patches of light and dark. In Second Sight's Argus II retinal prosthesis system, a miniature video camera in the eyeglasses captures the scene. The glasses, which look like Oakley's, were connected to a video processing unit about the size of a cell phone, which patients could wear on their belt. The video is processed by a small portable unit and transformed into instructions which are sent back to the glasses. Those instructions were then transmitted wirelessly to the implant in the patient's eye, which used electricity to stimulate cells in the retina and send a signal to the brain. 
Patients, most of whom hadn't seen in years, were able to perceive light. Eliza wrote about several of them. Barbara Campbell was a volunteer in the clinical trials. So even before the Argus II retinal implant was approved, uh, she was trying it out. And she's very independent and, and capable uh, even before the, the implants. But she really enjoyed having enhanced ability to navigate the world. You know, she talked about being able to find the bus stop more easily and, uh, and seeing the light above her doorway when she was coming home. Uh, and she just enjoyed it too, in addition to finding it useful. She just liked having that, you know, that, that part of that sense back. And it wasn't the vision she'd had before she lost her sight, but it was a new sense really that she learned how to use and, and enjoy in the world. I've just I've watched videos of people kind of around this time. We're talking 2013, 2014, and they they talk about, you know, how how great it is that they're that they are seeing flashes of light that they were never able to see before. Um when you talk to patients and you've covered this for years. What was their experience? I'd say the experience varied. There was one patient that my co-author Mark Harris spoke with, Haroon Perk in the Netherlands, who was able to get good enough vision that he was able to do archery and skiing. It was really remarkable. But then we spoke with other patients who said it wasn't really that helpful, that um, that they weren't getting enough resolution to really give them what they wanted. These devices were expensive, roughly $150,000, though in some cases covered partly by insurance. And I wonder kind of what the universe was like surrounding these patients. Who was helping them? And what was the company saying to them about how much support they would get? Yeah, so the device itself, right, cost about $150,000. And that was almost always covered by insurance, mostly at least. So people would have the implantation done by a retinal surgeon and then the sort of tuning process of them learning to use it would be done partly by their you know, surgical team, but seems like more often by second sites technicians. They had these vision rehab specialists. The rehab specialists would come to a user who had a new implant and say, okay, like I'm putting a picture on a screen. You know, can you tell me what shape it is? And the person would say, looks like a blob. And then they, the technician would kind of tune it, would say, okay, I'm going to put a little bit more electricity to this electrode, a little bit less to this one. And they'd say, now tell me what it looks like. And the person might say, oh, it looks like a square. And they'd say, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really an interesting process of, of sort of tuning the bionics to, to make it work for, for each person. One of the ideas I find so interesting here was that these devices were intended to be upgradable. And that I think in, in one of your stories, you compared it to an iPhone, right? Like you just update the operating system. That's obviously, you know, me making a crude analogy, but... How was that supposed to work? Yeah, people were really counting on those kind of upgrades, I, I think, because the initial technology was really rudimentary, but the company was always talking about what they were aiming for. Um, the upgrades that they promised people were all software-based. Uh, they weren't saying they were going to go in and, and fiddle with the actual electrodes in the eye. They weren't saying they were going to replace those and put in new ones. They talked about trying for color vision. They talked about... Uh, thermal imaging or face recognition so people could get a better sense of where people were against the backgrounds um, and just sort of software tricks to get more information from those 60 electrodes. And they were talking about this up until around 2018. Uh, and then from the patients that we spoke with, Second Sight just kind of went silent.
When we come back, Second Sight patients get a letter, and the news is not good. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In 2019, Second Sight sent patients, people who had the Argus, this implant, a letter saying that it would phase out the retinal implant technology to kind of focus on a brain implant for blindness that they had begun working on. From your reporting, what did patients think when they got that letter? People were hesitantly optimistic. It was like, okay, well, Second Sight's been here for us so far. I guess they'll keep taking care of us. A lot of people said it's a shame it's not going to go further. Like they had really been hoping for upgrades. They'd been hoping to see how the company would further develop the technology. But I don't think people realized that Second Sight's promises were ended up being pretty hollow. Like I, I would expect that Second Sight made those promises of continued support with the best of intentions. But when the company did run out of money and nearly went out of business, they just weren't able to hold up their end of the bargain. Even though Second Sight's technology was pretty dazzling, its business model had serious flaws. Chief among them, there simply weren't enough qualifying patients to sell Argus devices to. The implants were only approved for people with the most serious retinitis pigmentosa. Plus, the $150,000 price tag probably wasn't enough to offset the costs of patient rehab and support. In 2020, Second Sight had trouble getting financing to stay afloat something the company attributed to the pandemic. In March of that year, it laid off most of its staff. Within weeks, Second Sight auctioned off manufacturing equipment and computers. Just last month, they announced a merger with Nano Precision Medical. That company's CEO told Eliza he would try to do what's right for patients with Second Sight implants. But it's unclear what that even is. People have these retinal implants. Some of them are still working. A few people have had issues where they've stopped working. Um, People who are continuing to use them, some say, well, I just use it a little bit every day because I want to keep it going for as long as possible. Other people say, I'm just going to live my life and see how far I can get with it. Some people are saying, I'm going to get it taken out because it's unclear which kind of medical procedures I can have with this. You know, there was uh, one patient we talked to a lot who was unable to get an MRI because his doctor wasn't clear on whether he could have an MRI with this retinal implant and Second Sight wasn't picking up the phone to answer questions. I was struck by one story in your reporting about a guy who crowdsourced replacement parts. Yeah, yeah. That was Haroon Perk in in the Netherlands. Um, 
after the company stopped making and supporting the device, he dropped his external video processing unit, just like you know everyone's dropped an iPhone and it smashed to pieces. And he thought about what to do, whether he should just say, well, that was the end of my vision experiment. But he decided in the end that he would like to get his vision back. And so, yeah, he just reached out to the community of Argus Uners in Europe and found somebody who had a, a, a spare unit, or maybe they'd stopped using that unit. So they sent it to him. Another doctor had some spare parts. So yeah, he had to cobble together replacement parts um, to get a, a functioning system going again, which was impressive that he was able to, to make that happen. Um, but people whose actual implant fails, they have no recourse at this time. Thinking back to the optimism around sort of neural implants and, frankly, the focus on it now, you know, Elon Musk is interested in this, it certainly raises questions about what happens as devices and implants and technology become obsolete. Who is supposed to watch out for patients? As I tried to find the answer to that, I, I dug around a little bit in the history of pacemakers because I figured, well, pacemakers have been here for a long time. They are a life-preserving technology if if your pacemaker gives out, you're in trouble. Um, yeah. So it turns out there are now regulations about sort of interoperability, but there weren't always. Uh, when pacemakers were new, uh, there were competing companies that would make these devices and they have a limited battery life. So when your battery is close to giving out, you have to get it taken out and have a new one put in. But in the early days, the battery devices were not compatible with the electrodes for, from other companies. So if you were going in to get a replacement, the doctor had to see if, your, your, if the new replacement would be a match for the electrodes that were going through your arteries. If not, they'd have to pull out the electrodes, which is actually quite a, a dangerous procedure. You can create scar tissue. So eventually there are regulations passed that they, all the electrodes and all the battery units had to be compatible with each other which was great for patients, a very good step forward. Also, regulations now say there has to be clear marking on the outside of every battery unit so that it's visible through medical imaging, so an ER doctor knows immediately what they're dealing with. That kind of thing seems like it should probably happen for neural implants too, but it's unclear right now to what responsibility they have in terms of long-term support. Second Sight also has a handful of patients who had a device implanted directly in their brains. That device, called the Orion, is still in clinical trials, but the patients may be in the same boat as those with retinal devices. We spoke with one of those people who was involved in the Orion clinical trial who said that now that the company is in such dire straits, he wishes he had not done it. He's just nervous about what's going to happen. At the conclusion of the trial, he plans to have the device taken out, even though it is giving him a fair amount of vision and, and autonomy in the world. It's very unclear what's going to happen both to these people who are testing out the brain implant and to the technology itself. You've talked to patients over several years now. Um, do they feel that this grand experiment was worth it? Some people felt like at least they were contributing to science and they were proud of that fact. Others felt that it had given them something useful, that the implants had given them a new kind of independence or autonomy. Others just felt really angry and kind of used by the company um, and felt like they would not have signed up for the, for the technology if they'd known how the company would ultimately fail to support them. There is a line in your story, um, failure is an inevitable part of innovation. 
which is true. It's true in in almost, you know, every human endeavor. And I wonder how the medical device community or even how patients wrestle with that, right? Because the stakes are just so much higher mm-hmm. than that piece of software. Yeah, and you think about the choice people make if they have this early stage device presented to them. Like, you, know, you think about when you buy a piece of technology, you're like, should I buy an electric car now or should I wait another four years for it to be better and more established and for the batteries to be better? When you have people having to make those decisions about technology that's going to their own bodies, it's really much higher stakes. It seems like there will be more of these conversations in the coming years uh, as neural implants are becoming a reality and these kind of technologies are going to be part of our new cyborg age. Eliza Strickland, thank you very much. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Eliza Strickland is a senior editor at IEEE Spectrum. She reported the story with Mark Harris. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you missed it, I want to recommend you listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next. It's about how Texas is going after trans kids and their families. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We'll be back next week with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.